Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 28th, 2017, and this is episode 1971 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a, a good one for you today, I think, anyway. I'm going to do my best. I'm still uh, discombobulated uh, between the uh, the workshop and... Uh, You know, having a death in the family, it's a, it's a, it's a rough week. But I'm going to get on the air every day and do what you do, because I think that's what you do when, uh, when times are down. And I wanted to do something kind of different today than we've done for a while. And uh, we don't really look at politics very much. I'm going to take a look at politics today, politics today sort of, uh, I guess because some of the things we're going to talk about are centered politically. But I'm calling today Future Business, Political, and Entrepreneurial Trends. Yeah, so we're going to talk about things like the Obamacare mess when I say politics and uh, uh, trade with China, uh, things like that, tax reform, uh, those types of things, but not really from uh, you know one side's good, one side's bad standpoint, um, or both sides suck standpoint even. Just that this is this is what's likely to happen and why, so that you can know what to do about it. We'll talk about some of the business trends. Like how retail is dying, but yet there'll be this sort of a phoenix within retail. But don't don't get too excited. It's not going to be a lot of it. But some of the some of the new things that'll be out there, there will be new retail establishments, and uh, what they will kind of look like, and how some of them are already emerging. Uh, why banks are going to be moving to the blockchain t technologies? They're going to have to, and uh, what that means, and how marketing is going to become laser targeted in the next 10 years. Like you ain't seen nothing yet. We'll look at some entrepreneurial level opportunities and uh, why they have merit for you, the individual who wants to go out and hustle and make something happen. And we'll finish up with uh, why we need to all be thinking about agility and adaptation over the next 10 years. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. With that, let's uh, took, uh, take a look at the um, history segment. The year is 1971 because the episode is 1971. Alex Shrugged has two for us today, and Southpaw Ben has one. We have from Alex Shrugged the Silmar, California earthquake, and the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, which is a fantastic story, really. And then we have the media reveals that the government was in the wrong, contributed by Southpaw Ben. The, this is hard. This is a hard one, guys, picking my uh, segment. I haven't even done so yet. I'll, I'll read the bullet points, and we'll come back to it. Notable births, ISIS leader or ISIL or whatever, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, Mark Anderson, who is co-creator of Mosaic, one of the first web browsers, 
In politics, Mar Marco Rubio and Bobby Jindal. Men in movies born this year, Mark Wahlberg, Luke Wilson, and Chris Tucker. Women in movies, Denise Richards and Winona Ryder. In comedy, Christina Applegate and Amy Palmer. In music, Kid Rock, Snoop Dogg, Tupac Shakur, who died in 1966, age 25, killed in a drive-by shooting, resurrected as a hologram in 2012. I don't, I don't really know what that's about. Anyway, in sports, Kurt Warner and Lance Armstrong. New year in film, Fiddler on the Roof, Dirty Harry, A Clockwork Orange, and Billy Jack. This year in TV, Columbo, The Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour, All in the Family, and cigarette commercials are now forbidden. Uh, so if you, if you weren't you know, at least four or five years old, uh, by 1971, you've never seen a cigarette commercial, a real one anyway, not other than a replay. This year in music, Maggie May from Rod Stewart. Imagine, no religion, no possessions. John Lennon comments, the socialism I speak about is nice British socialism. Yeah. Brown Sugar from the Rolling Stones. Note, the band is escaping nice British socialism because it's taxing them to death. I wonder if that's what the Beatles were doing, too. Yeah. Uh, in other news, for school busing begins, school districts must take affirmative action to racially integrate. It's the law. White flight ensues. Alex shrugged. As a, as a kid that grew up with um, busing, um, I can tell you it didn't help at all. <clears throat> it did nothing to help anyone. It was a bad idea. I'll leave it at that. This year also the weather underground blows up the men's room at the U.S. Capitol building. We're talking about Bernadine Dorn and her husband Bill Ayers, the rumored ghostwriter for Barack Obama's audiobiography. And Project Gutenberg digitizes the Declaration of Independence, thus begins the digital archive of public domain books. The Internet does not yet exist, so access is limited to students on campus. And I'm still kind of torn. <clears throat> I'm going to read Southpaw Benz. The media reveals that the government was in the wrong. It's hard not to read the Silmar earthquake because Alex gives us great earthquake advice. And the D.B. Cooper skyjacking is something out of a friggin' spy novel, man. Uh, but here we go. This one actually has a lot of uh, relevance today. It's February 1971. <clears throat> You're a reporter. The aide for a leader of a task force studying Vietnam War approaches you with a study called United States-Vietnam Relations, 1945-1967, a study prepared by the Department of Defense. Upon examination, you realize it could be a journalistic gold mine, but would damage the image of government and possibly threaten your career. What would you do? The aide was Daniel Ellsberg, aide to the Assistant Secretary of Defense McNaughton. You are Neil Sheehan of the New York Times. A study brought to you will become known as the Pentagon Papers, and will be one of the final nails in the coffin for American public support of Vietnam War. The contents of the paper reveal the Department of Defense knew the war was unwinnable, and also showed just how much the previous administration had actually known about the war, including the fact that JFK knew of the plans to overthrow Ngo Dinh Diem well prior to 1963's coup, and that Johnson, despite promising not to expand the Vietnam War, had plans to do just that well before the 1964 election. It also revealed the expansion of the war into Cambodia and Laos, which had never been reported upon by the media. The Nixon administration attempted to have the New York Times cease publication, and the issue eventually went to the Supreme Court, who ruled that the publication was legal and could continue. Ells Ellsberg was charged with uh, espionage. But the case was dismissed when it was discovered that his psychologist was burglarized by a secret White House team to discredit him. We will hear more about that same team next year. Yeah, I guess we know where we're all going, right? My take by Southpaw Ben with the mainstream media as in was the with the mainstream media as in bed with the government as much as it is today. It's hard to imagine anything like this being published. 
unless it was against a very specific individuals already being demonized by the media. Cough, Trump, <laughs> cough, Trump, uh, and definitely wouldn't be published if it would have damaged the reputations of the four previous administrations, as the Pentagon Papers did. Too bad, as today there seems to be so many more leaks of important information trying to happen, but they have to go through less credible outlets as the proper channels refuse to touch these important issues that could damage the government's image, as if it could really look any worse. Indeed. Um, I don't know. I, I tend to believe that there are certain levels of things that the media will report on, even if it damages a president or an administration that they, that they like. But it's definitely the case that there's, there's clear media bias uh, against the current president. And a lot of times, if you, if you don't like them, you think it's okay. The media is not supposed to be biased. The media is supposed to report on what happens. In this case, I don't care who was president, right? I don't care who was in charge. I don't care. When you have a government that knows it's going into a war that it can't win, that knows about a coming overthrow that could have intervened prior but didn't and allowed it all to happen, that had plans to expand the war even though they knew they couldn't win the war, then you have to start asking yourself, what's the motivation? Why would a nation choose to escalate a war that it knows it cannot win? I mean, really think about that for a moment. And there's only one plausible explanation that I can come up with. And that is that it was good for the economy, that it was good for business, that we could make a whole lot of money selling a whole lot of weapons to a whole lot of, to, to ourselves, basically. I guess the other one is that it was a distraction in the Cold War. It was a place to draw focus and, and pull it away from other parts. Maybe. But all I can see is enrichment of, of the military-industrial complex. That's the only thing I can see uh, in the Vietnam War when, when I look back at what was revealed by the Pentagon Papers. You can draw your own conclusions. That's really the way we should look at history. We should all get the same facts and then draw our individual conclusions and then be able to logically defend them if they're actually valid. That's just my thoughts. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. Okay, with that, let's, let's get into what's going on. Um, I want to take you back in time. I want to take you back in time to um, the... Uh, First year of Barack Obama's presidency, 2009. As the health care legislation that would eventually become the Affordable Care Act, I call it the Unaffordable Care Act, um, first reared its head in, in the halls of, 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 of the Congress. And a big fight ensued, of course, and especially through the summer of 2009 into the early fall And there was this belief that it could be stopped. And all the way back then, I said the following. This thing will pass. You can melt the switchboard at the Capitol. 
They have the votes. They're going to do this. And I'll tell you right now, it's going to be terrible. And it is designed to fail. The purpose of the Affordable Care Act is to, is to destroy what's left of the private health care system, to completely ruin it, so that by, by, by 2016, when a new president takes over, people will beg the government to do anything, something. Please make it better. But the only thing I got wrong is it hasn't quite imploded yet. Okay? It's, it's really right where I said it would be, though. Because here was the other thing that I said. It's almost scary accurate. That there would be a Republican strongman that would come out of nowhere. No one would ever expect that this guy would ever be president of the United States. Don't know who he is, but he's going to be something like that. Like, you don't, no one now in 2009 knows who this guy is. And if, if, if you just never would figure it out. He's going to come in and he's going to take over and he's going to sell the right on a path to government controlled health insurance. And the people will give in. They will give in because it will hurt so much they'll feel that they have to. So, do you know what I heard today on Fox News? That the, the, the moderate and mainstream Republicans may have to actually go to the table and beg Democrats to come over to get enough Democrats on board to get this thing done. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And um, here's what I think happened with this you know, legislation they tried to cram through in about 60 days. They knew it was going to fail. It was always intended to fail. They put enough in it to piss off the Freedom Caucus and even some of the moderate Republicans so that they would vote against it on purpose. It was never intended to pass. Because right now, things aren't bad enough. We're not far enough along in the timeline. I'm telling you that the heads, you know, the head guys at the GOP and the DNC have the same goal here, and they always have. What they're both looking for is the political cover to get it done. Right now, if the Democrats come to the table, they look weak. If the Republicans pass something that doesn't do what they said they wanted to do, they look like a bunch of ass clowns. If they don't pass anything at all, which is what just happened, they look like a bunch of bigger ass clowns. Here's what happens. This is, this is what happens. Either the Republicans start to actually negotiate with the Democrats and they, they woo enough Democrats to get it by. And they're going to have to woo basically for every Republican name, for every Democrat they woo, they're gonna, or every two they woo, they'll lose one of the Republicans that they still have, the people that were in that one, okay? And what, what will happen is if they can get enough of them, they can get it done, and it's bipartisan. Or, this is a big possibility, bigger possibility than most people think. The Democrats might wreak havoc in the midterms, and you got Trump and a Democrat majority in both the House and the Senate. Trump is for government-controlled health care. He'll work with the Democrats. He'll work with the Republicans. The Democrats would have to hold their nose to work with Trump. They absolutely would have to hold their nose to work with Trump. But they would do it. They would do it because they would have the opportunity to get what they wanted at that point. And it would be a huge political victory for them. And if Trump would just say it's a huge political victory for, for, for him. 
I mean, here's how it is with all of these people now. If, if a decent person was debating any of them, it's like playing chess with a, chess with a pigeon. No matter what you do, it's going to shred all over the board, shit all over the place, and claim that it won. And that's what both sides are going to do. I should say all three sides in this case. But one way or another, whether it's before the midterms or after the midterms, you're going to see comprehensive health care reform or whatever the hell that they're going to call it. And it is going to lay the, it's not going to be an immediate takeover by government. What they're going to do is a public option. The, the whole thing that was the big resistance point to Obamacare and never got into Obamacare in the first place. They, there was not enough support to get it done. And, and this is what I actually believe that they're going to do now. They're going to keep pushing for this thing that's called a block grant to the states for Medicaid. So instead of the federal government handling Medicaid, they'll say, Texas, here's your money for Medicaid this year. Georgia, here's your money for Medicaid this year. Whether they get that or not, what they're going to do is they're going to allow people to buy into Medicaid. And they're going to say that will actually bring more stability to the program. So if you don't qualify for Medicaid, right, for free health care, very, very, very cheap health care, what they'll say is you can buy into Medicaid. And they'll say anybody can buy into Medicaid. Doesn't matter who you are. And what people will think, well, all the really super sick people will buy into Medicaid. No, most of the really super sick people are already got some kind of insurance anyway. And, and it, what they have will probably be better than Medicaid is. But what will happen is the people who are the people that never buy health insurance, the people that always hold out and say it's too expensive, the people that barely ever go to the doctor will be the first ones to rush in because it'll be cheap. And it actually will be build for some time some economic stability to the program. And over time, it'll start to, to bleed and head toward going insolvent. But since the government can just print money and go into debt, they'll be able to prop it up for a long time. And eventually, when people get sick and tired of being told you can't see this doctor, you can't see that doctor, you know, They had that, they were paying all this money. They'll, they'll switch to Medicaid. There'll be a huge influx to it, even if it sucks, because it all sucks already. And, and what you'll have then is the death nail. You'll have very, very high-end private insurances, and the public option will be all that's left. Probably over about 10 to 15 years, that migration will take. And they know it, and they know that's what they're doing. Because both sides want this in the end even when they say they don't. The reason they want it is it represents power. If you control people's food, medicine, communications, energy, if you control all of those things, you fully control those people. And there's not a politician out there that doesn't want more control. Well, there's maybe one or two. The vast majority want more control. The other side of it is they're all on the payroll of the corporations. And the corporations want this too. And you'd say, well, the, 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 surely the insurance companies don't want it. No, you're right. Aetna, Blue Cross, et cetera, they don't want this. But they also got to, they also got to figure something out or are going to go broke under the current situation. So they may lay down for it so that they can try to figure out some way to survive. It's, it, it will never happen. But all the rest of the corporations want it, especially the pharmaceutical companies, so they can see, keep selling drugs to people and have it paid for with other people's money. And I'll tell you what. We've gotten so out of hand with what we think uh, health insurance is supposed to do for everyone 
that there's no way that it can work in the private sector at all anymore. If we're going to have it do what people want it to do. Because here's what people want it to do. People want it to pay for anything and everything that they need at all times. The end infinity. People want a person who has $50,000 a year in medical expenses to pay $500 a year for insurance. That's what they want. Do you want to be in the business of selling that product? I guess if you're commissioned, then you get sell, you know. But I'm not talking about being like the guy that just gets a commission for it. Because I could sell the shit out of that, right? And they're holding about pre-existing conditions. We've gotten to a point in this country where the vast majority of people in their elder years especially end up on very expensive medical protocols. Extremely expensive. A huge part of it in drugs and medication. A huge part of it in attempting to sustain life beyond what, what is natural. So you have a system that can never maintain balance. It will never work like car insurance. You hear the analogy, well, if you let people buy medical insurance after they get sick, it's like letting them buy car insurance after they get in a wreck. I only wish it was true. I only wish it was true. Because the reason car insurance works is most people end up paying more into car insurance than they ever get out. That's why it works. It has to go that way. So when somebody has a wreck and somebody has a lawsuit, they end up with a quarter-million-dollar lawsuit, how many people who didn't file that year does it take to pay that off and leave the insurance company solvent? And the answer is a lot. And that's how insurance works. It's a risk pool. Everybody puts some in when the, the risk uh, turns into reality for one party. The risk pool pays the payout. Health insurance cannot freaking work the way you're being told that it can work. It can't do it. It can't pay for your drugs, your doctor visits, every single thing that ever happens to you, and cover you when you have cancer, and cover you when you have a coronary bypass. It, it Mathematically, it doesn't work. You could have a maintenance-type insurance product, or you could have a catastrophic product. You can't put the two together. And the whole thing was pushed in that direction because the government wanted to take over. It's been going on for 30 years. There's a logical conclusion. So that's, that's what's in your future. I don't care who's president. It doesn't matter. If space aliens come and beam, beam up Trump and Pence and pick the two best guys to do the job and put them back in their place and say, we're space aliens, keep them, take them, you're going to have them, and leave, say, but if you don't listen to them and we come back, you're in trouble, we're still going to end up with this happening. Because the system's already gone that far. There's, there's no turning back from this path now. Don't bother worrying about it. Because there's nothing you can do. You gotta worry about yourself at this point. Let's move on to Trump, Trump's tough talk on China. They, they cheat. They manipulate their currency. You know, we, we need to make them respect us again. Trump will make life easy for China. For a couple reasons. One, tax reform. I'll save it, but just think about this. Trump's gonna have millions and billions and close to a trillion dollars coming back to the United States. I'll get to how that's going to happen in a minute. A shitload of that money is coming out of China. Yep. Those companies are going to bring that money back here. Repatriation of dollars is what you're going to call it. So if you suck that kind of money out of a heavy trade partner, you got to give them something. So we don't have to give China anything. Yeah, we do. Look around your house how much of it is either made in China or a piece of it was made in China. But the other side of it is, Trump's a businessman. 
And despite what people think, Trump's not an idiot. He acts like an idiot often, but he's not an idiot overall. He has a fundamental understanding of business in America, a pretty damn good one. And there are, I would say, probably millions of people in America, entrepreneurs and one-off entrepreneurs. What I mean by a one-off entrepreneur is you're not the entrepreneur, but you work for one. And I don't mean like, you know, well, I work for you know HP or I work for IBM. No, I'm talking about the entrepreneur that has two or three people working for him. Okay, That's what I mean by a one-off entrepreneur. You're so close to the boss. You have an understanding of the company, and if, and if, and if he stops doing what he's doing, one person, you, the whole business goes away. You don't have a job anymore. And there's a lot of people that have importation businesses and things like that. And they're getting some or all of their product from China. But they're, they're doing value-add and selling it here in America. And that value-add could be anything from actual value-add, somehow improving it or integrating it into another product. Like, let's say, a home automation person that we're going to talk about today. A lot of the product that they use to do an install is going to come from China. They're doing a true value-add, though. You get it. It's a box of shit. It doesn't do anything. They come into your house. It runs your whole house for you. You got it? Okay. And then there's a lot of people that their whole, their whole value-add is marketing. You say, well, how's that a value-add? It's a value-add for the seller, for the original manufacturer, because they can't reach the market without that marketing. So they're going out and they're getting private label products that they're selling them on Amazon or something like that. Okay? And this is a huge piece of our economy now. And you can say whatever you want about bringing jobs back and fair trade and bullshit. It's not going to happen. And Trump knows it's not going to happen. Again, the man's not an idiot. Well, he's not an idiot on matters like this. Okay? That's probably a better way to say it. My mouth just started to taste bad saying multiple times he's not an idiot. Trump's not an idiot when it comes to matters like this. Yeah, that feels better. Okay. He knows that if you go tough on China, all these American entrepreneurs and these people that work for them, these one-off entrepreneurs, I would call them, it hurts them. They can't just get whatever they're getting from someplace in Sheboyganville, Idaho. It doesn't work that way. It's not ever going to work that way. And the people in this country don't want jobs doing those things and making that shit. You know, ask the average kid today that's looking for a job. Well, you want, do you want to go get a job in a factory making freaking teacups? No. Well, you are a teacup, so you should like, you be like procreating, but you see what I'm saying? They don't want those jobs. You know? And it, how many, how many 50 somethings do you think are going to go work in a plant making, you know, the random crap we get from China? So the kids don't want to do it. The old people are either successful or can't do it. Who's going to do it? No one's going to do it. So what will happen is Trump will make trade with China easier, if he can anyway. Everything he does up front will be talking tough. But behind the scenes, will be, guys, don't worry. We understand this relationship. you got to give me some leeway on this. Give me a little professional courtesy, we'll call it. And don't worry. So trade with China will actually become easier, as easy as it is right now. And that brings me to tax reform. Trump will get comprehensive tax reform done. He will get a major cut to the corporate tax rates. And the left will belly whoop about it the whole way, but they're going to let him have it. A few of them might even cross over and vote for it, especially if they can get some goodies for their people on the other side of it. Why? Because it's the smartest thing that we can do right now. Because it will bring close to a trillion dollars back to America. And it's not a tax cut for millionaires and billionaires. 
Cutting corporate taxes does not cut the taxes of a billionaire that owns the corporation. And, and if anybody was honest in, in journalism, in, in radio, t television, in, in politics, if any of them were honest, they would tell you what I'm about to tell you right now, and they won't. If I cut taxes for Apple, and Apple brings their money back to America, and they don't pay taxes, they pay very little tax on it, which is what we're talking about. And as they continue operations now in the United States with those funds, however they use them, and they make money, they pay lower taxes, still not a tax cut for the billionaires that run Apple. It's not a tax cut for Tim Cook. Okay, let me explain something to you that people just don't understand. When Apple makes whatever billion dollars this year, you know, a gazillion dollars, whatever it is. It's not Tim Cook's money. It's not Tim Cook's money. It's the company's money. And as far as, well, he'll have a private jet. He already has one. That, that shit, that's irrelevant. Okay? And those are all expenses to the company, which taxes are as well. When, when the company makes an income, a dividend is paid to its shareholders... Okay, But it's taxed first as a corporate tax gain. The remainder is then paid to the dividend as a dividend to the shareholders who are taxed on it again. If Tim Cook has an ass load of stock, which he does, and he gets a dividend, which he will, he'll effectively be taxed on it twice. First, as, a, as, a, as an owner at a corporate tax, and second, as a recipient of a dividend as an individual. Changing the corporate tax rate might make the dividend bigger, but it doesn't change the tax rate on the dividends. And this is what companies really want to do. They want to grow. So they're not going to pay all of it out in bonuses. And there's some control over how a company pays a dividend. What companies really want to do is retain earnings without massive tax consequences in the company. Why? Well, then they can do shit with it, like develop new products and services and hire people and build stuff. That's what you want. When you are, a, when you are an owner of a company, you want to keep money in the company. You don't want to take money out of the company. Unless you think time's up. If you think it's time to start winding down a company, then you want to keep enough cash in it. You want to make the operations look really good. You want to pull some of the money out so you can dump it on some other sucker who thinks everything's wonderful. But you want, might want to pull some capital out before you do that so they don't get the capital with the company. All right? But if you think the company's going somewhere for the next 10, 15, 20 years, you want money in the company because you can do stuff. So if you want money in the company, and you're Tim Cook and you'd like your money here in America, why do you have all this money in China? Because we tax it at 40%. It's like $80 billion that Apple alone has in China. $80 billion. You think Tim Cook wants $80 billion in Beijing? You think he feels safe with his company's money in Beijing? So why not just bring it home to America? Because you're going to pay 40% tax to repatriate it. That's why. That's why. And you know what happened the next day? The biggest class action lawyer uh, law firm in the country would, would, would file a class action lawsuit against Apple on behalf of Apple shareholders for malfeasance with their money and malfeasance of fiduciary responsibility for costing them that much money in one move that they didn't have to make. And they would win.
So, do you think all of the political scum in D.C. around the toilet beltway, right? Do you think all of them in a toilet bowl there would like these companies that give them all kinds of money and buy them all kinds of shit to bring a trillion dollars back to America where it's available to give to them, or do you think they'd like to see it stay overseas? So one way or another, you'll get comprehensive tax reform because it's time. It's time. That money's built up. Now it's time to bring it back. Don't want to start jacking rates up again whenever they can, but for a time, to set the trap and bring the money home, they'll do it. And they'll keep telling you, it's a tax cut for billionaires. Yeah, you know, fundamental reality, money goes where it's treated well, and the United States treats money like shit. And those biggest corporations, the money they do have here in the country, they don't pay tax on it anyway. They don't pay tax on it anyway. They, they put the money overseas they can't avoid taxation on. Look up what General Electric, Electric paid in income taxes over the last 10 years. And then tell me about corporate taxes. You know? It's a 40% rate, but yet they don't pay anything. What do the oil companies pay? They don't pay shit. Because there's all kinds of back-end deals to avoid taxes for them. So why do you care what the corporate tax rate is? And they're using people like Tim Cook and ExxonMobil and stuff like that to sell you one. They don't deserve one. No. I'll tell you right now, you cut the corporate tax rate, the biggest thing you do is you help small entrepreneurs, people that are employing 5, 10, 15, 20 people. But that's not why the scum are going to do it. They're going to do it to get that money to come back to this country so that they can get their greedy little hands into it. So, yeah, it'll happen out of self-interest. But there might be some positive byproduct from it. Next, I want to talk a little bit about retails. We move kind of into the business, like what's going to go on with business in this country going forward. And I want to talk about retail. And like Jack's going to talk about retail dying again. I'm actually going to talk about the other side of that, the new retail model that will be successful. It's, it's limited in total size and scope. And it will not replace the pare down over the next 10, 15 years of general retail, right? Department stores and the like. It will be highly specialized, specifically marketed to very hot niches by companies with the technological savvy to pull it off. One such company is the, is the darling of e-commerce, Amazon. Yep. Amazon. Amazon's opening retail stores. They have a retail store for books. Several of them now. How does it work? Only the best. Books with 4.5 stars and above are right there. And you can go in, you can look at their Kindles and their, their, their tablets and all that shit. And you could be sitting there and looking at this book and say, I want this book, but I want it on my Kindle. And you could buy it right there. They don't care. And if you have an Amazon account with your credit card to, tied to it, like most Amazon customers do, you have to pull out your cash. You can use your account credentials on the app, and you can buy the book right there and walk out the door with it. But yet it's a bookstore like the old bookstores that are all going out of business. Big, beautiful wood everywhere. Nice, soft places to sit. Maybe a little cafe. You can, you can, and when you're looking at a book, you swipe it, and there's all the reviews of it, not just the one or two they have printed there in front of you. Will that model be successful? I think it will. I don't think you'll see one in every place. You'll see it in upwardly mobile, affluent places where people like that kind of technology and have money, and they like that old bookstore space. And after they put all of the 
All of the big giant books, not all of them, but a shitload of the big bookstores out of business. Like, you know, Barnes, I remember Barnes and Noble was like my getaway. Especially when I didn't have a lot of money, which might be part of the problem. You know, I would go into a Barnes or a Barnes and Noble or a Borders or something like that, buy a coffee, sit in a big easy chair, and read books and magazines like I was in a library. And yeah, every once in a while I would buy one. But most of the time, I just used it as an opportunity to get away. When you're young and you're broke, that's what you do. Well, Amazon put those types of concerns out of business. The, the market's completely different now. The mentality of the 20-something that I was back then is different now. They're not trying to scrape and make it on their own. Most of them in their 20-somethings are still going to college and still getting money from mom and dad. And they're using their student loans to buy shit. Companies are happy to take your student loan money. They don't care where you got it. But whatever retails, uh, retail outlets emerge and become successful, it won't necessarily follow this Amazon model of only the best, but what it will follow is some deep specialization. It will be the place you can go to where the staff is fundamentally, fundamentally knowledgeable about things. That doesn't exist anymore. It will. It will. It absolutely will. It'll be that type of, of thing, or it'll be technologically innovative. The, as I've said many times, the grocery stores will be, you go pick your groceries up and leave. They're already paid for. So we don't need people at the checkout counters. So in there, instead of having a product specialization or a staff specialization, we have a technological specialization. These are the, these are the way that you'll see a rebirth and a, and a metamorphosis of retail While there'll be less of it, and it will support less jobs, it's not going to go away, and it will be interesting to see how it shakes out. The next thing I want to talk about is blockchain technology, and I don't want to talk about it from the uh, the way that we usually, not at this moment anyway, talk about it with you know, Bitcoin and, and different cryptocurrencies and Ether and how that was going to transform society for techno-anarchism, basically. I want to talk about it from the standpoint of big businesses. The big banks are going to migrate a lot of what they're doing to a blockchain-like technology because they have to. The amount of money it costs them to move money is insane. And the times and the lags compared to what can be done with a blockchain-like technology. The security can be actually much higher with a blockchain. And I'm tired of people saying things like, you know, they can hack into Bitcoin. Or whatever. You, you, you don't know what you're talking about. And you're still stuck on technology that's five years old in a space where this technology is evolving rapidly. See, the thing about when you hear blockchain, everything's, well, it's the Bitcoin blockchain. There's, there's multiple types of blockchains. And they can be cloned, and then they can be developed into other things to do other things. So you won't see Chase using Bitcoin. They'll probably accept it, but you won't see them using it as, they won't use the Bitcoin blockchain to move money around with interbank lending or to fund your mortgage for you while you're at the closing waiting for your check to show up, you know, and the funds to become available. Think about it that way. So you, you have sold your house. And you needed to sell your house to buy a new house. And your house sold two days ago or a day ago. And now you're at the closing for your new house. And your mortgage funds are finally available. 
and now you're waiting for the money that was already spent to become. I, I've been there. You know, you got to wait like an extra hour until the, the 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 money from the house that you just sold becomes available to you. It, it's just kind of cumbersome stuff. You know, it all should happen in one instant. Buy, sell, done, done. Right? I've been approved. What are we doing here? And that's just one example. The 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 load on businesses and the financial institution by the current economic uh, means by which they actually manage, control, and transfer money is unbelievable. And I, I, this is another one of those things that when I say something like the banks are going to use blockchain, um, a lot of people think that that's just you know fanciful wishing or something like that. I'm going to pause for a minute. I'm going to play something for you off of Fortune.com. Um, a new report out from uh, IBM. Here, here's what it had to say. Actually, it's not even that new. This is from September of uh, 2016. A new report says the blockchain, the technology that underpins the digital currency Bitcoin, will become central to the global financial system. Bob, do you buy this? I buy it, hook, line, sinker, Andrew, because <laughs> it is happening. It is going to change. It's inevitable uh, that the financial industry is going to overhaul their infrastructure, and the blockchain is going to do it. Really? Uh, absolutely, yes. And now, the World Economic Forum, they're the ones who released the report. They said that four out of five banks are going to be using blockchain tech by next year. Sure. That is very soon. The future is here. It's happening right now. Bob, did you actually read the report? I mean, they I, read the report, they, Andrew. Yeah, they, they did say that, but they also said that you know they were going to be actually using them centrally in their Operations. They were going to be using blockchain as a, an experiment, as, as special projects, right? They're, they're, they're basically trialing this stuff. And you can understand why. I mean, the blockchain is a very, very different kind of technology. It's a distributed ledger, right? I mean, the idea that you can get approval from two different entities without having that central uh, arbiter, right? But the problem is that's actually how the financial system works everywhere else. There is a central authority, and the idea is to stamp out corruption. Do you really think the financial system is going to basically invert itself for the blockchain? Look, if they don't get with the program, they're going to be totally <laughs> circumvented by this technology. Um, I, so, I mean, everybody's trying to eye this as an opportunity, not as a threat. Uh, but the fact that you've got 80% of banks that are going to get up and running in trial programs, sure. even in the next few months, that is a feat in and of itself. Yeah, but let, okay. Let's let's take the argument on space. Let's say that the banks actually adopt this and they're good, you know they're fully behind it and all that kind of stuff. Is this actually be. better for them? Honestly, is this actually better for them? I mean, look, I'm I'm a big defender of the blockchain's possibilities. I think it can be used in a lot of different interesting applications. But when it comes to financial transactions, I'm not sure it's actually faster. A lot of folks have criticized the slowness, and the reason is because they have to get approval from all those different places at once. To, to, to conduct the transaction. If you add on top of that the, the layer of regulation that all transactions are susceptible to, the reason that it takes three business days for me to give you money. I need that money, Andrew. Exactly. Are banks really going to go for this? I, well, I mean, look, first of all, the, the people who are selling this say that it's going to cut down uh, potentially the settlement time for trades from days to minutes. Right. So, uh, the, the thing that gets you is that it's not as efficient because you've got duplicated resources everywhere. I mean, there's a lot of hype about the blockchain right now. Sure People is. are pitching it to solve every solution. It has very particular use cases. It is mm -hmm. not a cure-all by any means. Uh, however, it is going to radically change the backbone of the financial industry. I would look out for those 20 bank, those 20 percent of banks that are not getting with the program now. That's a fair point. For one show that's central to your media diet, come to Fortune.com for more tech debate. So. What the article that's with that says is about 15% of banks will be legitimately using it this year. And 80% will be doing something with it. You know, trialing it, playing with it, figuring it out. 
And they do have to. They have to because they are going to be made irrelevant without it. Because as people start to use these cryptocurrencies, they begin to understand the advantage to it. You and I exchanging money instantaneously. Where the banks will use it first is for their own needs. They'll use it, like he was saying, their backbone, their core. So that money can move between, uh, let's say, Chase uh, a bank and Wells Fargo Bank more quickly. Instead of Chase's customer and Wells Fargo's customer. And they'll speed that up. But they'll just keep evolving it outward from there. And they, again, they have to. Their infrastructure is old. It's very, very old. Um, from a standpoint of the hardware they're using, it's not. I don't mean that way. But the basic means by which the protocols by which they move, control, and ledger their money it is very outdated stuff. So that's coming. Um, another thing that's going to be more and more the case is what I call laser-targeted marketing. Right now, the federal government's building dossiers on all of us. We, we know this from... Uh, whistleblowers like Edward Snowden. We know what they're up to. We've just had a huge additional release of tools that the NSA has at their disposal uh, to spy on people, to turn their own devices against them and things like that. And uh, as concerning as that is, what you need to understand is the people that are really building dossiers on you are corporate marketers. And their software that's so old, I used it before I started TSP. Uh, it was called Eloqua, and it was a email marketing software, but it was also a web analytics software blended together. I'm sure it still exists. And what it allowed me to do was identify you and who, who you actually are in my customer database and know every action you take as a customer on my website, how you log in to pay your bill, or if you pay your bill online or not. So that when I write an email marketing message, I can have you like segment into multiple groups and completely customize it towards you. That sounds cutting edge. It's not. Again, this is old. It's a very expensive software suite back then. I think it was like a $20,000 implementation fee, and it was like a couple thousand dollars a month after that. Yeah. Yeah. They're going 90, I'm sorry, 2005, 2006, and it was fairly well developed. I don't know when it started. And it worked. It worked really well. I ran very basic analytics in the beginning where if you were willing to do a lot of manual work, you could identify a person and once they came back, you know, if you figured out who they were, you could tag them and see everything they did on your site. Don't worry, I don't want anything like that now. It wasn't very practical to me in what I'm doing. I don't really care that, you know, Dan or Steve or, 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 or Nicole or, or Susan are on, on the TSP website. It's, it's, it's a tech head. It's kind of interesting to be able to track a user, right? But it, it, it doesn't really do anything for you. But if you're in the business of selling shit and you have to start having inter-platform tracking, um, and this is, again, I'm, I'm giving you the old technology so you can start to figure out where the new technology is going. There's a, a technology called retargeting. And retargeting works like this. You're a site owner. And you have traffic that's not converting. So you want to sell some of that traffic. So you put a little cookie on your website. And uh, a little tracking code that deposits a cookie on your visitor's browser, I guess you should say. And um, they come to your site. And now it's known that they were at your website. 
They, it's also known all the other websites that they were at. Okay? And what you might do is buy their traffic back to your site on other people's sites. So someone comes to your website and they see, you know, Joe's used tires. It's probably not very practical to use that, but we will just to make it kind of fun. And they think, well, I don't know who this Joe guy is. He's not any big deal or whatever. And I don't, I don't know that I need tires right now or whatever, but hey, I saw Joe's site. Two days later, you see an advertisement for Joe's site on a big website. Like, uh, I don't know, like Mail.UK, whatever, you know, the, the, you know, one of these big news sites. You see Joe on that news site. And then you go over to another site, you see Joe here, and you see Joe there, and you start seeing Joe everywhere. Well, this retargeting has sold all of these people into their network, and they're all sharing your information, and you're constantly being represented with brands that you've previously visited. This is why you will go to a site like Amazon, look at an item, go to Facebook the next day and see that very item advertised, whether you bought it or not. This is old tech. They're getting better and better and better at it. And there's companies out there building nothing but mining software. Not for mining bitcoins, for mining data. They're selling business to business. Again, this is old tech. But they're, again, they're getting better at it to where what somebody's going to be able to do is send you an email, right, that says, hey, Bob, today is your birthday. Uh, why don't you go out and see your favorite rock band? They happen to be in town. Here's their name. Here's where you can get tickets. By the way, take your wife Barbara with you. She loves them too. That'd be a little creepy, wouldn't it? That'd probably be a little more subtle. But that's the type of, of laser-targeted marketing that's coming, where they know everything about you, everything about all the people around you. And again, governments use this to you know, extort taxes, to shut people up they don't want talking. Corporations use this to make money. By whatever means work, including selling your information back to the government. You're worried about the NSA collecting data. Some of these data mining companies, what they know about your competitive corporations, and it's not necessarily hacking. I want you to understand that. Sure, some of that happens. But I don't mean that they have these data miners that go in and, like, crawl into IBM's mainframe, you know, and gets into their customer database and starts robbing information. I'm just talking about collecting publicly available data in really intelligent, coherent ways, identifying patterns, piecing together this one user does these things, and they go into a group of users that all do those things, and then they can be targeted specifically. And like I said, the next time you're like, I just looked at that, why am I seeing an ad for it? There you go, and that's old tech. So what about you? What are some entrepreneurial activities and why do they have merit a couple I'll point out I just had presentations done on them at our workshop first one is home and homestead automation Charlie Fairchild did a great presentation on how you can automate a lot of things on your homestead but you can automate anything you can automate your house and we all see the thing with the guy with the, the, the phone he turns the lights on and he checks the stove and whatever and the reality is a lot of that stuff can be done and it's not that hard But there's not a lot of turnkey solutions for it. So a person that can implement it or put it together and say, now this is a solution for you, you can install it in this one-off installation that you need done, 
has, has a lot of value. Because a lot of people would like it, but they feel like, I can't do it. And again, even if they, they're willing to be a self-installer, there's still a huge market for because people won't do it. Because it can't be something that's like a box. You just plug it into your wall and it takes over the house. Now, they may start building houses sometime in the future that are kind of are wired that way from the beginning. Smart homes. We, I mean, I saw the first failure of smart homes. The first smart homes were simply going to be homes that had computer cabling throughout them. And then, you know, wireless routers became like 50 bucks, and that was the end of that. But true smart homes with, you know, integrated logic circuits throughout the house so that when you, when you walk in, basically you can control your windows and your shutters and, your, and everything in the house and your water and your electricity and everything's all central. But right now it doesn't exist. It's a lot more like a sprinkler system. Now, anybody can go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy pipes and fittings and run a pipe out to their garden and put up some things and even set up a timer and turn it on and water something. Or you just need water to a building. So you dig a trench, you put it in the ground, you put it all together, you glue it up, you turn on the main water back on, and now you have water to your building. right? Anybody really can do that, but a lot of people hire people to do it. But one thing we, we they, you can't do is basically go to Amazon and say, I want a building-to-building water kit. Well, how big do you want the pipe to be? What's your pressure level? When it gets there, what do you want it to be? Do you want it to be a little hose spigot on the outside? Do you want it to be a sink on the inside and the outside? What do you want it to be? How far are the two buildings apart? Does it bend? Does it bend enough to need a fitting that's a 90 or a 45, or is it enough that just the pipe is flexible enough to get there? You see what I mean? That's how, that's how automation is. Like, the stuff that does it is actually pretty off the shelf, most of it. But you got to figure out how to put it together and, and what you want it to do. And I think there's a lot of people that don't even know what they can do with it. There's people doing things every day that they consider to be a pain in the ass that they don't really want to do that they could automate. They could absolutely automate it. And we'll get to where it's turnkey, but we're not going to be there for a long time. So I think that is a place where a good entrepreneur who not only figures out how to do it, but how to market to the right group of people, this is what you could have. You don't have to worry about how complicated it is. I'll come do it for you. Or if you tell me what you need, I'll build you what you need and send it to you. That's something that, see, your big companies can't really compete with. That market's not big enough yet for a staff of people doing it. You know, numbers in the dozens. They can't develop enough of a market for it yet. But yet they can't, they can't automate the automation process. They can't come up with a product. That you, again, they can't come up with a box. You stick it in the wall and you say, computer, from now on, turn the lights on at 4, a, you know, 4, 4, 4, p, or 4 p.m., and adjust my thermostat down before I get home. And there's people going, I have that in my house right now, Jack. That's not hard. You know how many people don't? Do you know how many people can't work a freaking timer, like a regular just you know timer? Or don't want to. Don't give a damn. Or don't even understand where it would make sense to put that into their lives. So I think that's a, a really great market. I think unique high-end items. Food, beverages, carvings, you name it. Nicole, 
Nicole Awesome Sauce, right, comes here. That's an inside joke and a good one. So Nicole comes here, and she does coffee, custom roasted coffee. She goes out, and I just thought, she, okay, you buy coffee and you roast it. But here's what she's doing. She goes out every year, and she samples all these different green coffee beans from different places. She finds the best one. She makes up small little one-off blends using small amounts. And she determines that the, you know, after a certain process, this year I'm going to source this coffee and make this blend, and that's all I'm going to make this year is that one blend. She sells it for $16 a pound in Tennessee and not Nashville. Why? Well, because she's educated her market. And she can tell a compelling story. And, you know, you might think, well, $14, $16 bucks a pound for coffee, that seems pretty expensive. Well, what would you charge to do it for somebody? This is what I say. I want you to order all this shit. I want you to have an expensive roaster. I want you to take the time. I want you to package it, all that. But before you even get to that, I want you to refine down a blend. I want you to make sure you're, you're sourcing only from, you know, True free trade markets as well. I want you to make sure the quality. I don't want you to just go out and go, I'm going to buy you know, this coffee, this guy, mix it together and, and, and roast it. Even if you do a fine job roasting, you're making something very, very specific. Oh, and by the way, she can only take so many customers a year. So once she gets to the point where she fills that up, you don't get in. Now, <clears throat> you go to somebody's house. They say, let me share this coffee with you. You go, my God, that's great. Where'd you get it? I get it from this gal Nicole that lives right down the road. She makes it herself. Oh, yeah. Tells your story for you. I, I'd like to get some of that. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I can only get like, you know, one bag a month or something, whatever it is, you know. Um, she has a waiting list. And what, is that, what do you think your, your existing customers feel about like that? Like if, if you drop off the map and stop buying, you, you got to go back to the back of the line. Now, don't go start roasting coffee unless that's what you want to do. It's just an example. And you keep it under a certain amount, it falls under college food law, right? So that's one type of thing, but it could be anything. We had people here do demonstrations on leather making. We had some people here that were very, very talented woodworkers. These things can't be made in China and stamped out. They can't come out of the corporate apparatus. They can't even come out of companies like Starbucks. Right or Seattle's best, they can't compete with that handmade process. And in a world where everything is going to be fully technical, everything is going to be automated. What's going to be left is the the, the, the made by hand stuff, and not necessarily always literal interpretation. The stuff that has individual stories, and it will tend to be long tail product. And what I mean by that is it will be too small for the big companies to really bother with it. And that, that spells entrepreneurial opportunity. Um, I think real estate has tremendous potential still. It's one of the most ancient ways that people have gained wealth. But there's a new world evolving out there. The, the person that's creative with real estate might be able to really nail something down with. I think multiple properties in multiple states that are set up more like private boutique campgrounds for long-term staying. 
So instead of it being like, I, I don't know what the hell they call those things, uh, but you know, like the, the big RV parks that, you know, that are everywhere that people, when they get, you know, RVers just, you know, they look up when I'm, when I'm going to be staying overnight in Texas. I look up you know, this particular thing and find a place and go stay. I'm thinking more along the lines of maybe not even nothing to do with an RV, well, cabins or something like that that are designed for this new lifestyle that many of the successful millennials are into, which is this kind of transient lifestyle. People that are very successful with technology-based businesses that can work anywhere, they want to go live in a place for three months. How do you skin that? I don't know. But there's there's a way. It would start with building one and proving out the economic model. Once you proved out the economic model, well, then you can go get funding. Once you prove an economic model, um, banks will give you money. And I mean, I'm just I, I, I sit and I think about this whole tiny house movement thing. And how ridiculous it is from a standpoint of people thinking they're permanently going to live that way. But I look at it and I see opportunity for the person that says we can come live that way for a month or two or six or eight. And I know people are already doing it. And that's one of the things, like when you say, like, this is something to consider, people are already doing it. Well, good. It's a proven model. It means it works. Um, I also think back to blockchain technology. Now I'm back on our side of it instead of the big banks. I think this is what we have to do when we look at blockchain te technology. We had, you know that little audio I played for you? And I was like, the blockchain is good for some things, but only certain things. It's being sold as a solution to everything, but it's very specific task-oriented things it can do. See, that when you start saying blockchain and it as a singular, you don't really understand the technology. Because it's not like there's one blockchain And all of the, you know, all the different coins are running on that individual blockchain, or even that blockchains need to run coins. And it's not even that it will always be something we'll call a blockchain. There's this, now we have this whole new concept of, of, of distributed ledgering and let the money part of ledgering go away. Distributed accounting, distributed um, communication, distributed verification. Distributed acknowledgement. So anything that requires a verification process can go on there. Whether that verification process is I promised to build you a website, and I did, and you promised to pay me uh, 40 jack tokens, and you did. Right? That, that, that's, that's how you have to think about this. So it could be something completely different then. Like... Um, your house is right now supposed to be 75 degrees and it is or it isn't. Wiring it back into automation. How exactly does that work? I don't know. What exactly would you be able to do with that? I'm not sure. But it is that, it is that wide open. And in, you know, say 1996, when I first started playing around with the internet and people would say, you know, I, I, There were so many things that you would look at and say that the Internet will be able to do all these wonderful things, and people would say, well, how? And it, you didn't need an answer of how right now because the Internet was not a singularity. You know, my, my, my father struggled with this. As smart a man as he is, he, he would say things to me like, the Internet's going to go broke. The Internet's going to go broke. This is around like 99, 2000. He's telling me the Internet's going to go broke. Like that, the Internet can't go broke. It came down to as he was saying AOL was going to go broke. It wasn't really far off, honestly. 
But he, he, he couldn't understand that AOL and the Internet weren't the same thing. And I don't mean the way the people that, that were on AOL, that because they were on AOL thought AOL was the Internet, because he never used the Internet in his life, right? I, I still don't think he owns a computer or a, any kind of a sophisticated... I don't even think he owns a cell phone at all. Um, if he does, I don't have the numbers, so that means he probably doesn't have one. But he just couldn't... He still couldn't grasp that the Internet wasn't a thing or a place or a company. It was just simply a way of connecting devices. We had to give it a name, but it still wasn't an individual thing. That if your computer goes away, the Internet's still there. If your city goes away, except for the part of the Internet that was in your city, the Internet's still there. That's what the Internet was. And that's what blockchain technology is. Blockchain technology is a concept. And when you look at things like cell 411 and people circumventing Uber and Lyft and just doing their own thing and then using a trust-based system to say, look, you don't need you don't need to have you know Uber run a background check on this person because they've they've picked up and done things and they've they've helped people and it's not just in a ride share things. Here's all the reasons to trust this person on their network. And and the person instead of starting out with strangers is probably starting out with at least neighbors and friends. And as they develop their trust, they move their sphere a little further and further out and all of a sudden they're a person that when a person gets to town They get on cell 401 and say, is there anybody with a ride available? And you think that's creepy, but when it pulls up and this person's been part, you know, been doing this for five years and has trust ratings from everybody, well, shit. So how many opportunities is that going to create? And if you think about the Internet, there was highly technical opportunities. And if you go, like, to the extreme, that would be a Mark Zuckerberg developing Facebook. Yes, I know he ripped it off from the guys at Harvard. I don't care. I mean, technologically doing the development that turned into something like that. But yet there were people that when Facebook got really big, went, you know what, this apps thing that they have, or the same thing with the iPhone. Now, I don't know how that shit works, but I know what my, I want my app to do. So they hired a company, a company built an app, and they made a lot of money off their app. Or some guy gets in a car with cheap technology, a recorder and a headset, builds a podcast, uses RSS syndication that he didn't really even understand exactly how it worked. He just knew that it did. Builds a survival podcast. The blockchain technologies, the protocols, the concepts is the next internet. Not from a standpoint of it will replace the internet. It's the next place that these, these major innovations that will create major opportunities are going to be. And that doesn't mean go out and buy all the different altcoins because you'll be rich. Because as many of them succeed, you know, twice or three times as many of them are going to fail. There's a lot of rigmarole going on in there right now. The, the stuff with the long tra track record, you know, we don't know what it's going to be yet. But when stuff's super cheap and you can pick up a couple hundred bucks worth of it, you know, maybe, maybe. But that's not really that's not really what I'm saying. It's not like buying internet stocks, right? That's how you got to look at altcoins right now. Buy internet stocks. Would you buy Google or Yahoo? Yahoo's still around, yeah. You want to look at their high versus where they are now and where they've been since their high and how long ago their high was? You want to know just for fun? Yahoo traded for $108 a share. 
on December 31st, 1999. And uh, it plummeted to seven bucks a month later during the dot-com crash. But by 2005, it was trading for, you know, 43 bucks. You know what it is today? 46 bucks. <laughs> that could be the altcoin you buy. But if you, if you bought Yahoo, right, in uh, December 6th when it was 85 cents a share, you made out. If we, if we look at Google, Google had its IPO on um, September 3rd, 2004, 50 bucks. It never saw 50 bucks again. It might have. Where did it go in the bust? Let's see. 131.35 in a bust. If you're buying altcoins, which one are you getting? You don't know. When you were buying internet stocks back then, which one were you getting? Were you getting Yahoo or a Google or um, what was the one? Excite. That was another one of the early search engines. You know that they had an opportunity to buy Google for $750,000. Yes, $750,000 they were offered. They, and initially they, they, had a, they could have bought Google for a million dollars. They turned it down. It came back to $750,000. They didn't want it just before Google went uh, public. And uh, what ended up happening was they were valued at like $7 billion at one point, but by 2001 it was bankrupt and, and worthless. So that's how you have to look at the altcoins. It's like buying dot-com stocks. But the point was never the dot-com stocks. If you were smart, it was the Internet itself. You got it? That's what I'm talking about. That's what we're looking at here with blockchain technologies. If you're looking at Bitcoin and you're judging blockchain on Bitcoin, you're not doing it right. It's the underlying technology. So you've got you to learn more about it. You've got to pay attention to it. You've got to figure out because when PayPal made it where anybody could put a button on a website and take payments... They made a lot of people a lot of money over a lot of years, and they still do. I still use PayPal as my primary payment gateway. I run most of my business on PayPal. It's not quite a button, but it kind of sort of is. And, and that wasn't, well, PayPal was going to be successful. Is that somebody was going to create a system like a PayPal. And when they did, there would be opportunities for entrepreneurs to take money from their customers without actually seeing them face-to-face. So you have to look to this, this evolving world of blockchain and cryptocurrency and tokens and all this as the, new, the next evolution of technology and what piece of it can you grab. And I want you to think about it like this. Uber is very much a blockchain-like technology. It's not quite the same thing, but it very much is. You're out. You're on your phone. You want an Uber. You pick it up. You push a button. It shows you the cars that are available, how much it's going to cost to go when you're going. You say, I want this class of service. You click summon. They come to you. The, the system verifies that both sides have connected with each other. They verify where the driver and you are. They verifies that you were dropped off. It verifies that you paid. It could be done even better on a true blockchain-like technology. But if you're an Uber driver... All you know is you download the app, and now you can make money. This is what I'm saying. I hope that makes sense. Above all, we have to think agility and adaptation going forward. Because I can talk about all these forward-looking things that I see coming, and I can tell you that a lot of it is inevitable. But I can't tell you exactly how, exactly when, 
at exactly what the opportunities are going to be or what opportunities will be lost. And there's no way I could know your individual situation sufficiently to say what part of it you should go after. You're going to have to look at it. Or what part of it you should get out of the way of. You're going to have to look at it. And I know I've said this before, and it's almost like I'm beating a dead horse now, but the speed of change that you're about to see is going to be phenomenal. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to make the last 20 years look insignificant. And the speed of that change was unbelievable. Unbelievable. If you really think about it, go back to 1997 and think about where we are today versus 1997. Go back 30 years. Go back to 1987 to today. What happens between 2017 and 2020? I would, I'll, I'll go out and say 2027, 10 years, will we'll be like, 87 to 17 happening in 10 years. That, that's a good way to look at it. So stay agile, stay adaptable, pay attention. And if you like the show and you want to support me, one of the ways you can do that is by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Where you can see the Amazon deals of the day and all of my reviews of Amazon items that I put up on the website as an affiliate. Uh, my review today is on Davidson's Organic Peppermint Leaves, item of the day, man. Um, and if you've been here, you know, like I have peppermint growing freaking everywhere and you might be like, what the hell is this guy buying peppermint for? Well, it's organic peppermint. It's all dried, screened, sifted for $13.55 a pound. Now, if you think that's a good deal, right? You want an entrepreneurial deal? I buy about a pound of this stuff. I'd say every two months is about how much of it I use. If you want to go out, pick your own peppermint and, and, and cut it and sift it and give me a product equal to this, and you grew it on your own property, I'll pay you $13.55 a pound for it. Go do it. And most of you are like, well, uh, oh, no. And you should be, right? Because if you're going to operate at that level of quantity, then you have to be in a different scale mindset, right? It's not something you just do in your spare time. It would take you about 10 pounds of, of wet peppermint leaf to get a pound of dry sifted peppermint. And... Uh, It would take you at least two hours of your time. So when I look at it that way, it's $7 a pound or $7 an hour. And, and my time, frankly, is worth more than $7 an hour. And I got stuff to do here that would cost me more to have stuff. That's another way to look at your time value equation, right? A little, little lesson here. Yes, um, I could do this for $7 an hour, but I'm not going to be working during that hour or those two hours. But if the other thing I'm going to do, like I'm going to go build a couple um, – new ebb and flow beds for my aquaponics system, if, if, what would it cost to have somebody do that for me? Well, probably a hell of a lot more than $14. Bucks. So I'm better off spending my time and my sweat equity on something like that than this. Anyway, the reason I, I, I bring this item up is I've, I've given away my tea recipe a lot of times, and this is the peppermint I use in it. Three parts peppermint, three parts chamomile, one part lemongrass, one part lemon balm, one part green tea. Links to all of it are in the review. Thing is, I mix up about four quarts of this. Yeah, I mix up about a gallon of that blend every time I blend. I get a huge bowl, I dump it all in, I use a cup to measure. Not a, like a specific size cup, like I bring a glass, a, like a small juice glass out of the, uh, the cabinet, and I'm like, I put, you know, three peppermints, three chamomiles, you know. Um, it's good stuff, man. Everybody's tried it's liked it. I also use it in a few other things. I use it in a, a tea that's just 50% peppermint and 50% lemon balm. Um, 
And I use it in uh, a mead. I use that in a mead, by the way. I use three-quarters of a cup of that in a mead. Good stuff. Check it out. And you can find everything that I recommend on Amazon on tspaz.com. With that, let's talk about the song of the day today. The song of the day today is Riders on the Storm by The Doors, which is a, a pretty interesting song because I never really knew the, the history behind it. It was just always one of those songs that you listen to and think, yeah, man, everybody was stoned in the 70s. Um, here's what it says. This was, this was from Song Facts. This was the last song Jim Morrison recorded. He went to France and died a few weeks later. The single was released in June 1971, shortly before Morrison's death. The song can be seen as his autobiographical of his life. He considered himself a rider on the storm. The Killer on the Road is a reference to a screenplay he wrote called The Hitchhiker, an American pastoral where Morrison was going to play the part of a hitchhiker who goes on a murder spree. The lyrics, Girl, You Gotta Love Your Man, can be seen as a desperate plea to his longtime girlfriend, Pamela. I never knew. It's, uh, it's an interesting song. I always people, I know some people are going to be like gasp. I've always thought The Doors and Morrison specifically were overrated. I, 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 I like them okay. But like this legendary status, I think that's because Jim died. But it's still a song that's, that's interesting, and it certainly typifies the, the early 70s. This, is, this was a, a big part of America's culture, 1971, and uh, whether you think he should be a legend or not, he is. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The world on you 
Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out on loan Riders on the storm Thank you.